really amazing. <laughs> anyway, I was, I was, I grew up in a place where, um, you know, we, this it was the Netherlands Indies at the time, but the, the, the Dutch are not very good colonizers. They're not interested in owning the country. Mm -hmm. They just want to have harbors where they could trade for the spices. Mm -hmm. And so the Netherlands Indies had a constitution for the Netherlands Indies. And um, the constitution was, the first article was that all the land in this territory, it's a very large area, belongs to the local people. Mm -hmm. and Foreigners can only lease the land for 25 years. And Article 2 was that the justice in the different areas, the different islands, are the local adat, which, is the main, which means the custom, you know. So not European justice. But, but anyway, the the culture of the Malays that where we were, we, I lived in Sumatra, the culture is uh, an interesting culture because um, it accepts what is mm -hmm. and it accepts people who they are. Um, so I grew up with that idea. We today human beings don't do that. We don't accept things as they are. We have to change everything the way we want it to be. Mm -hmm. And so to me, when I met the Aborigines, that changed my life. Um, because they are the essence of accepting what is. You know, they have no desire, no knowledge, but no desire to own anything. Mm -hmm. They don't know the meaning of the word owning, and they have no idea of wanting to change anything. I mean, they take things as they are, and they took me as I was. Mm -hmm. When we came to Malaysia in 1961, I think, yeah, 61. Um, <laughs> it, was a, it was like coming home, you know, because in the, in the time between 1939 and 1961, nothing has changed. I mean, in Malaysia, the situation was exactly the same as in Sumatra. Um, the Aborigines accepted me as I was, and I. I knew how to do that, and I accepted them as they were. And I learned an awful lot from them. Mostly I learned that it's a completely sustainable society. Mm -hmm. I found out later, for, for instance, to give you an example, I think all human beings had that same idea that, you know, you accept what is. <clears throat> uh, 
I found out that in 1776, when Captain Cook discovered, quote unquote, this, these islands, and he was lucky because he came at a time when he was received friendly. Um, he had another captain with him. I think it was Captain Vancouver. There were three boats. And Captain Vancouver wrote a journal for all of this two-year trip around the world. And he writes ecstatically about the Hawaiian people, how beautiful they were and how tall they were and how strong they were and how healthy they were and about the women and about the, how clever the men were with their canoes. It was a, just a wonderful, you know, pages and pages. And then I found out that in the 1960s, I think, the Bishop Museum did a study on how many people there were in 1776. And they came to the figure of about between 800,000 and a million people in the Hawaiian Islands, all the islands. There were no cities, and so that was easily spread over available land, which means that in this, on this island where Captain Cook landed, uh, probably there were like 400,000 people mm -hmm. living a completely sustainable life. And they were healthy and beautiful and strong and all of that, but completely sustainable. Today, we have 197 people, thousand people living on this island, and we import 95% of what we use. That's completely unsustainable. Yes. And that goes for the whole world. Mm -hmm. Our whole civilization is unsustainable. I get audio books now, and uh, over there, the last two years, the woman who sorts out the books for me has learned my taste. <laughs> and so she sends me things that interest me. And so I found out that uh, in everything we do, uh, we humans today, everything we do is destructive. We destroy the planet with everything. I mean, it's really amazing. There's a book by um, Al Gore, yes. and it's called and The Future. Future. Have you read that? No, I've, I've seen the movie An Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, it's an amazing book. I, read, I heard it twice, but um, it's pages and pages and pages, all the chapters except the last one are about all the things we do and how clever we are and all the science and all the things we discover about the universe and about this and about that. And it's all very clever, but absolutely everything we do has negative uh, consequences <clears throat> because our whole sciences are based on finding out how things work and all that stuff, all left brain stuff. Uh, 
everything we do has consequences that are bad, that are destructive to the to, to nature, because we have, at some point, I think it is 7,000 7, years ago, I'm, I'm guessing, but we, we have decided that we are not part of nature, that we are a part. The Bible says, you know, we, this earth was created for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are the boss. We are. We don't have to accept things as they are because we have to make things the way we want it to be. So there are seven thousand different ways that we want it to be. And when you make something, when you do something, then you then then there are consequences. But we never think about consequences. And so my feeling is, and it's getting stronger all the time, that we are destroying this planet, and the planet is talking back to us with climate change. But climate change is not the only thing that's happening, because we're also des destroying the variety of species that make an ecology. You know, an ecology is the balance of all the different life forms on the planet. Mm -hmm. And it's the relationship between the planet and the life forms. And what we, what we are doing, we're destroying very fast a lot of uh, species. And that makes everything unstable. The, the, our economy is very unstable because it gets, the rich get richer, very much richer, and the poor stays the same and get poorer. And this is true all over the world, but particularly in this country. And so I feel, and I have felt this for a long time, that there will be a time and I think it's much closer than the end of this century, that everything in the world is going to collapse. The economy is going to collapse. I think that there's going to be a biological collapse. I think there's going to be a... Everything is going to fall apart at the same time. You know, not sort of following each other. Maybe a epidemic and economical system. <clears throat> and, but after that, and, and the earth gets warmer and the storms get worse and, you know, the ocean is going to rise. It's already rising, actually. People on this island have noticed that the high tide is about 10 inches higher than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So my, my feeling is that, my, that uh, we human beings today are, are doomed to, a lot of us will die. I think the Earth will survive because the Earth, you know, the whole 
ecology of the planet uh, is, you know, is very strong and it's going to get warmer and, and more stormy and all kinds of things, but it'll recover. Whether humans will recover depends on how they can accept the changes. I think there are going to be fewer humans. This planet is not big enough to support seven and a half billion people or nine billion people. Um, the way we live in America. That's right. The way the way we live. This is this is the right addition to that. Yeah, I think yeah. it's just completely out of out of question. Yeah. I mean, this American lifestyle, in my eyes, is has a lot of waste in it. You know, there's a lot and of terrible waste and yeah. and. What we do with the waste is we throw it away. Yeah. We throw it in the atmosphere, we throw it in the water, we throw it in the soil. Mindlessly. Yeah. yeah. Um. And all the things we do, like I, I recently found out that the, all the GMO thing, you know, the, the change in the, the corn, food chain. The, it's mm -hmm. called maize in the rest of the world. But uh, all these things last about two years because when you put pesticide in a plant, in the seed of the plant, it does kill a certain kind of pest, but always there's like 10% or 5% of that pest survives. And they and then they grow. Yeah. And the same with, with antibiotics. You know, an antibiotic is designed to kill certain kind of bacteria. And a part of the bacteria is going to survive that. And so they grow again. And so the when you make antibiotics, you have to change it every two years. And that's why they don't make the antibiotics anymore. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so... Uh, I, I didn't know any of these things. I'm learning from, from these audio books. But. Micro, microorganisms are alive three, three and a half billion years. You know, they learn how to adapt to changing yeah. environments. Right. And when they, when they're only like 10 or 5 percent left, the rest of them, they survive. Mm -hmm. And then they adapt to the new environment. Yeah. They, they, they are smarter than we are mm -hmm. right now. So I have no, and I think you know we we should trust on nature. I mean, I've noticed here, for instance, I, I feel very strongly. I don't do anything about the garden. I, I don't make a garden here. You know, I leave things the way they are. I grow things the way they are. And until I got blind, uh, I ate most of my vegetables from things that are growing. Yeah. I I don't have a garden. Because, and that works. And I've noticed, for instance, with, with things that come in here from outside. You know, there are at least a hundred planes a day that come to this, these islands from all over the world. It's inevitable that they bring insects and seeds and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Invasive species. And I've noticed that 
if you're leaving things alone, the ecology takes care of it. It takes about two years. I remember when there were cocky frogs. Mm -hmm. I talked to the cocky frogs. <laughs> you know, I have now I have one you know, over there. And when I go to bed and it's getting dark, or it is dark, I hear this cocky frog and it says, Cokey, Cokey. <laughs> and so I answer, I say, Cokey, Cokey. <laughs> and after about two minutes, he says, Kokiki, Kokiki, <laughs> and I could go to Kokiki, and he learns that. But when I say Kokoki, he can't learn that. Uh -huh. But I found out that the chickens, we have wild chickens, everybody has wild chickens here. The wild chickens eat the eggs of the Koki. Okay. And now we have uh, fire ants. Mm -hmm. And they're a pest, they're horrible. <laughs> but I'm quite sure that in two years, you know, they'll be rare. Mm -hmm. They'll be absorbed in the ecology. Mm -hmm. That's how ecology works. But we get all excited and we spend $25,000 to invent something, something, and it never works. So I think, I used to think that it was just simply a different way of thinking and that I could, by my writing, urge people to think differently, think like we used to. But now I'm, I'm realizing that when you live in this civilization, you cannot think differently. We cannot give up the electricity and the, and the smartphones and the refrigerator and all this other stuff that we deny of money. It's not. So. It's not that you can't. It's. It's very hard to do. You can, but it's really hard because you get a lot of opposition from society. I think it's impossible to change because, you know, you get. We get conditioned from birth that we are the boss, that we are the ones who, who create this world, this, create a civilization of this world. Um, so I think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure actually, that there's going to be a collapse, and it's going to be a worldwide collapse of, of everything, of the ecology, of the economy, of biology, uh, everything is going to just fall apart. Mm -hmm. it's a, you, you, I think it's very obviously already happening. War is, everywhere. Is. I mean, everybody is fighting everything else. At least they, they tell us that it is this way. Yeah. I believe the media are not reporting what's really happening in the world. Yeah. Not fully. There's much good happening. Around. And I think after that happens, then we will see how, I think, the people who survive will evolve into a different kind of human again. Mm -hmm. We have been different humans all over our history. I'm, I'm re I'm, I keep saying reading, but I'm listening to a book now that is called he Who Do... 
who is uh, who discovered America? And it's an interesting man who realizes that 1492 is completely meaningless, that there have been people from other parts of the world visiting here long before that. Mm -hmm. Not only thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands of years. He thinks it's the Chinese. And it's a really interesting idea because uh, one of the things that I'm finding out from these books that I read, I'm not, I don't, I mean read, listen to. I know, to, I know, I know. <laughs> um, that there's an awful lot of research going on in, in the, uh, in our genes mm -hmm. and in our brains, uh, things that I'm learning about. And the genes, they have gone so far with the new microscopes, super, super microscopes. They've gone so far that they can actually date when a certain kind of element of this DNA, which is a very long string of things, uh, when it started. Mm -hmm. and so they, they have done research on, on when people came to a certain area mm -hmm. of the, because of the descendants. And so they found out, for instance, that in the United States and in South America, there are a lot of people with Asian species of DNA. Okay. Um, it's interesting because I have a friend who lives in North Carolina, uh, and she had her DNA read, decoded. Yeah, and she found out that she had ten percent Asian, and she never understood where that came from. So now I know it came from the Chinese, and he he doesn't mean Chinese, but he means the the Mongol Mongolia. China, Korea, mm -hmm. Japan, mm -hmm. you know, those mm -hmm. kind of people. Mm -hmm. He thinks they, they have made the first boats that could go long distances. Mm -hmm. Not only by the streams in the ocean, but by wind. They, they discovered and they made boats with wind, with sails. A very interesting thought, but that's like a hundred thousand years ago, it's mm. not, not, not our, when we think of history as two years, you know, you, we go back to the beginning of the United States, or two thousand years, we go back, go back to Rome and, G and Greece, but it goes way further back. So, that, all that's very interesting. But I, I, the last book I wrote um, is a very strange experience. I have been writing all my life, but publishing late. But um, the, 
His latest book I wrote, I wrote many years ago uh, about mm -hmm. the collapse, basically. It starts when the collapse is already almost, almost over, but it's a book, it's called Rain of Ashes. And when it was finished, I thought, well, maybe I should pu publish this, so I did. But I knew there was a sequel, but I didn't know what the sequel was. Six years later, I got the sequel. I mean, it, it actually it came to me. And I, this is not unusual because I've heard about other writers that, you know, you start with one person and once you have that person in your mind and you know what his background and what he or she is and what she wants and doesn't, then the, sort of, the book sort of writes itself. But when I got the sequel, it was completely different than what I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. It's about different people, mm -hmm. but it's a sequel. And so I have three pieces in this book that are like six years apart. And it comes together in the epilogue. In the last sentence of the epilogue, I think, is the sort of the, the bang of the book. <laughs> but anyway, I feel now obsessed with having that book out but I have to get some feedback from people. I'd, I'd like to have, tell, tell me, you know, is this publishable? Is this timely? Is it good? Um, and then I could think about publishing it. And it's called Earth Renews. Mm -hmm. It's the last thing that I've written. It's on your homepage. Hmm? It is on your homepage? It's on my website. Okay. It's under books, and it's in, green, in a green background, it has an emphasis. Okay. It's a, it's a difficult book to read, I think, because it's, it's, uh, it has a lot of unpleasant things in it. And it's almost, it's 266 pages. Um, I feel it's important. I. I don't know how good it is. I don't know. I think I, I, my writing is good, but I don't know. I, I really need some feedback on my book. Okay, I will so read it. I will read it. I give you something. I tell everybody to read it. Do you do you think it's it's important for 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 the masses for yeah for it's what's important. happening on the planet? It's important that it's out there, you know, that it's available, that it's available to people. And I know that people don't read very much anymore, and uh, that they don't read long things. And it's too long probably, but it, it almost feels as if it came to me. You know, it's, it's not my fantasy. It, it came from somewhere else. Because there were six years between the first part and the second, and then, and then the, the third. And then I wrote the epilogue last year, and this, and, and 
2013 and 14. And at the, at the last part when I could still see. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my impression is when I look at the world and what is happening there, mm -hmm. that there are many, many people already who see what you see and who understand what you have discovered and they are taking action. They're yeah, like that's two amazing. forces, you know? That's amazing to me because I get a lot of phone, not a lot, but fairly regular telephone calls from people. I've had two calls from India, one from the Czech Republic, one from Sweden, one, two from Australia, and from America too. So it amazes me because the book has been in print for 20 years. And it's never sold very many. Mm. Like a thousand a year, which is nothing. Mm. But now all of a sudden, it started three years ago. All of a sudden I get these responses, you know. You know how an exponential curve is working? No. An exponential curve, like it starts very slowly and then it rises increasingly, immensely. You know, that, that's how an exponential curve is working. Huh. That's how change is happening. And oh. that's how, um, how growth is happening and how consciousness is evolving. Yeah. That's how it explains why people are taking action, you know, and seeing that something has to happen. Yeah, it is something like that's, that. Yeah, that maybe explains why you get all of a sudden these phone calls, you know, yeah. because people get aware that what, what you have discovered. You know, when I, we were in Malaysia, um, and, uh, there's a lot of things before that, but I went through, I lived, I grew up in Sumatra, then I, my mother was very in, intense on sending me away from Indonesia because she was afraid I was getting too native. She was always too late because I'm more native than anything else. But uh, she sent me to Europe to go to university. And I studied medicine, but that was in 39. And medicine was a completely different profession mm -hmm. than it is now. And so then in 1939, World War II began officially. And so I spent five years of my life from 39 to, oh, actually 40 to 45 in, during World War II in Holland. And I hated it, it was horrible. I know what PTN, PTSD is. What is PTSD? I think PTSD is not a disorder. It is an experience of some things that are completely unnatural, that are completely inhuman. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you stories, but I don't want to. But um, anyway, after the war, in 1939, I had an in, 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 I had a visa from the United States, 
but then I couldn't get to the United States. I called my father because I said, I don't like Europe and I'm afraid of this war that's coming. And he said, okay. And I said, I want to go to America. And he said, okay, I'll pay you the same amount of money in America if you make the arrangements. So I went to the council in Rotterdam <laughs> and there was a line of people. I stood in the line, nothing happened. So I went to the front door. There was a soldier, now I know he was a Marine. And I said, you know, does this line ever move? And he said, are you German? I said, no, I'm not German. <laughs> and he said, well, then you can come right in. And so I saw the consul, and I told him I was going to study in America. Oh, he was all excited, and he got all kinds of brochures from the wall, and he talked to me about this university and that university, and how to fill out the forms, and what was important. And then after an hour, he said to me, do you have to happen to have your passport with you? And I said, yeah. And so he stamped it and he said, with an immigration visa. He said, in five years, you're an American citizen. Well, I went to four different boat companies, because there were no planes at that time. And they were all booked for years in, in advance. So I was on the line. But of course, you know, after the war, in 1945, the, the immigration laws had changed, the visa was expired, and they had a quota system. I think there were nine people from the United from the Netherlands who were allowed to immigrate to America. And so I knew that was out. So I went back to the university, but in the meantime, penicillin had been brought forward. It was discovered in 1918, I think, but nobody had thought about penicillin. Mm -hmm. But after the war, it was the thing, you know. So the medicine had completely changed. It came a branch of chemistry. And so I didn't want to do that. I'm a healer. And so I went to Amsterdam and I found out that there was a professor looking for an assistant and he bought he hired me so that I could all universities in Holland, I think all of Europe are free. All education is free. But I had to have some money to live, you know, <laughs> board and room. And so I studied psychology. And I studied psychology, a six-year program in three years. I was just frantic, you know. I lost five years from age 18 to age 23. And then after three years, I, I got a, an invitation to come to England. And I went to the London School of Economics and was a special man, a psychologist. And I studied with him. And then I got a scholarship from the University of Michigan for social psychology. 
and coming to America was a very um, strange, shocking kind of experience. But I didn't know anything about America, absolutely nothing. And so when I came, when I arrived, I, the Netherlands government had allowed me $25 to take with me. They didn't want to give foreign currency. <clears throat> but I could buy a bus ticket in Holland from Amsterdam to Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, from New York to Ann Arbor. Michigan. And so, but I had to stay one night in New York. And of course, I didn't want to spend my $25. So a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, that kind of thing. I found somebody who I could stay with for the night. And he was a young man, and he lived in a house that had the windows up there, and you could see the sidewalk on the street, mm -hmm. basement apartment. Okay. Very nice man, young man, same age as I was, I was 27. And um, so the next day, the bus went at 2 o'clock, so I had a morning free, and I had an invitation from a cousin of a cousin. I had known them because they lived in Holland, but they had gone to America before the war. And so <laughs> I came there and she said, now that you're in America, let me tell you a few things. Stay away from Jews. I said, what? I thought you were Jews. She said, no, 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 we changed our name. And I realized that they had changed their name, very Anglo-Saxon name. And she said, the other thing is even more important, stay away from any bad Negroes, she said. And I said, well, I stayed with a man who was a Negro <laughs> last night. Oh, she said, when does your bus go? You better go now. <laughs> and so, as soon as I came into America, that was the first thing I, I heard. And then on the bus, you know, the bus stops in the middle of the night, in somewhere in between New York and Ann Arbor. And I look at the menu and it says, hot dogs. And I think, hot dogs? Do they eat dogs in America? <laughs> Hamburger? Hamburg is a, is a German town. Huh? What? What is this? And I spoke British English because I had gone to school in London for a year. Mm -hmm. And everybody laughed or they couldn't understand me. So I had to know, I had to learn American English very quickly. When I came to Ann Arbor the first day, <laughs> my, my professor, you know, my advisor, put me down in a chair and he said, I have to tell you what democracy is. And I was thinking he was going to talk about the program, about psychology. No, he said, I have to explain what democracy is. Democracy is a two-party system. And I looked at him and he said, you don't have democracy, you have a queen. Like something filthy, you know. And I, I could, and he said, he repeated, he said, a two-party system. 
I said, well, if you have a two-party system, there is really no choice. It's either one whole bunch of things or it's another bunch of things. And you might have an idea that in between, oh, no, no, it's either one or the other. Well, today we can see how, what, that, what that has done. But, and then I met a man, or I met a girl, actually, I met a girl, and I met the family. The man was a dentist, and he lived in another town, and he was driving a Cadillac. <laughs> and I had never seen a Cadillac. I knew what it was. And I was very impressed. He had, had two beautiful daughters. One went to university. And then I found out that he had gone in an accident and that the car was damaged. And, and he and the youngest girl had been seriously injured. Mm -hmm. And it had taken two ambulances, because you can't have a man and a woman in the same ambulance, to three hospitals before they would admit them because they were black. I couldn't understand that. I still cannot understand that. 1950, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, three hospitals. And then there was one story after another. I can tell you a whole bunch of stories. But it, that is a shocking idea to me because I grew up in a country where there were people from all colors and all religions and all kind of people. Uh, I didn't see the difference. You you are saying that um, the cultural um, the development of the culture has gotten really bad from what you learned as a child. It has gotten bad first. I couldn't understand America. I couldn't mm -hmm. understand this racial thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's still here. It's 90, it's, it's 2015. And people are still more racial, or just as racial as they ever were. There's a, there's a man in, in, in the uh, government I heard today who was the head of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. And they allowed him to be in the government. Uh, I'm quite sure that this <coughs> whole thing about the last six years is because the Southern people cannot accept a black president. And I can't understand that. It just, you know, it's, it's one of those ideas, one of those... I, I'm very interested in cultures, but it's part of the culture of America that white supremacists are still very alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't understand it either. I mean, I, I grew up in Europe and um, we have other issues, but we don't have that issue that much. I mean, it's, it's a little. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I understand I'm privileged, I'm, I'm a white woman, I see it from my perspective. Yeah. But we don't have uh, so many, um, we don't have this mixture. mixture. Well, yeah, and thus yeah. we don't have this kind of problems, but it comes all from a different history, you know. 
Yeah, I guess. But you, America is an immigration country. But I mean, this is so many generations already. Isn't, isn't there any change? And because it's nurtured. Yeah. This fight is nurtured. I mean, when I turn on the TV in America, I get advertisement with war because war is so great. Yeah. You know, no, I don't war understand. War is not that. okay. No, it's not. It's unnatural for a human soul. It's horrible. It's, you know, I have traveled a lot after, after I got on an airplane. <laughs> but I've always had jobs that made me travel all, all over the world. And I spent 10 years of my life studying ancient healing practices. It was too late, of course, but... Um, and I was in the South Pacific. And in the South Pacific, you know, I went to... I know one island that I went to with 24 people on it. It was an atoll. When you have 24 people, you don't need the government. You don't need anything uh, official. <laughs> I mean, the only thing they grew on the island were palm trees and sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm. But they had a lagoon with a wealth of all kinds of animals and fishes and crabs and I don't know what else. But when you have 24 people, you learn how to live together. Mm -hmm. You have to. Mm -hmm. And the same with the Aborigines. Uh, there was no question about any kind of difference. You know, you accept things as they are. Because it's my feeling, harmony is the natural order, you know. Harmony with nature and harmony with, with all beings. That's And war is unnatural for me. Yeah. Disagreement. I, I on one of my audio books it said that yes we gave the slaves uh, citizenships but we just dropped them we just we didn't prepare them to what it means to be a citizen you know you just drop them we do the same as people coming from jail. Mm -hmm. No, I, over the years, you know, I've kind of simplified my thinking and I think what we have in common originally is caring and sharing. Human beings uh, have, have had this from the beginning, I think. Caring and sharing. It's a biological thing. It's not something in our minds. Because humans are unusual in that it takes 13, 14, 15 years before your children can reproduce. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take care of the children. We have to protect the children. And so I call it caring and sharing, sharing and caring. And then I recently got across a book from uh, this Tirol, this Paul Tirol, T-H-E-R-O-U-X. Yeah. He's a travel writer. 
and this is the last book he wrote, is uh, my last safari in Africa. And he travels from Cape Town north. He plans to go to this Portuguese, ex-Portuguese country. And every, you know, the, the people that I call the son, the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert, are one of the primitive people, the first people, as I call them. And um, the first people have the same caring and sharing. Anyway, he comes across, and they're no longer in South Africa, they're now in Botswana. And in Botswana, they want the diamonds of the Kalahari Desert, so they're very angry at the San people, and different tribes of people, but they're all San. And so, the Ansan, by the way, have a very strong Asian AD, uh, DNA. Yeah, DNA. Um, and so, Teru is in a country I name I can't remember, but it was a horrible country where they had revolutions and all kind of stuff. And he's in a place that's kind of deserty. And there's a young girl over there who is a son. They have moved, you know, north. Um, and he stands there, and he's a European. He has a back, back arm. Uh, I think he's sitting on something. And the girl has a stick, and she kind of swirls around the sand until it's soft. And then she digs down and digs up a root that she cleans off and begins to eat. And she eats it up to a certain point and then she offers it to him. And she knows perfectly well that he's white, that he has a backpack, that he's rich. But it's so much part of her uh, Beingness. being, mm -hmm. sharing. Mm -hmm. It really touched me. I mean, this is 19, you know, 21st century. And the girl is completely by herself. There are no other song around. But that, that sharing is so deep in us. Sharing and caring. I read, I read some of your articles. Hmm? I read some of your articles. Mm -hmm. And um, what really touched me were these stories when, where you lived uh, with, the, with, uh, with the Aborigines mm -hmm. in Malaysia and they shared about their reality, you know, the shadow reality and the, the real reality. Yeah. That really touched me because it's so much part of my life and how to, to bring these two together or see the opposites, you know, this, these contrasts of these two. It really touched me that they, mm. that it was brought into words. You know, when I, <laughs> I had I've written stories all my life. I mean, even when I was still in school. But um, when we left Malaysia, I was just heartbroken. I I was so. Um, I can't tell you. <laughs> 
this ability has really changed my life, you know, because it was something that I had experienced in my youth, but then the whole war and all that stuff and all the Western things came in between and worked hard on some science and another science and another science. And I have a very high IQ, and so I can learn all these things. But um, when we left Malaysia, I had an offer for a professorship in Hawaii. And um, I was just sick. <laughs> but I had I promised myself that I wouldn't publicly publish or do anything with the stories I had about the Aborigines because I had a feeling that I wanted to protect them, you know, mm -hmm. protect that kind of culture. And I was afraid that if I would publish something, they would be just invaded by anthropologists and tourists and, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite a while, late 70s, 80s, that I began to think, well, maybe I should make a book of all the stories that I have. Uh, and making a book is very different than writing a story. It's a completely different thing to do. And so I got this a period of, you know, a series of studies together. I thought, we'll make a book. I didn't want to write about only the Aborigines, but other people that I had met that mm -hmm. known and mm -hmm. that had something important to say. And so I was living in uh, Washington State at the time, in an island in Puget Sound. Oh, nice. Beautiful, beautiful, mm -hmm. wonderful, wonderful people, beautiful place. Um, Good morning. This is my son, Scott. Yes. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. I can't stay long. I'm helping um, my wife do stuff. I just came by to say hi. Okay. So. Are you going to come back later? Yep. i got to go run a bunch of errands. I have to get more things for Carmel Science uh -oh. Fair project. Is he going to school today? Not tomorrow? No, next week. Next week? Yep. But okay, I have to you, go. You work tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, are you, do you live here? No, I'm a tourist. You? Oh, come on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where are you from? Germany. Germany. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, how long are you staying? Well, in all three weeks. Maybe four. Actually, four. Weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's my last week now. Oh. How do you like it here? Paradise. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I'm going to run. Do you need anything? No. Okay. I'm going to check your mail later okay. after I go out. It was nice to meet you. Nice to meet okay. you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye. He's my youngest son. Mm -hmm. So where was I? <laughs> you were talking about the stories of the Aborigines that you didn't want to publish, but you were oh, yeah. writing a book is much more different than writing an article. Uh, 
Yeah. So what happened was, I was putting this book together, and I met a woman who was teaching writing. So I asked her some help, and she read the book, and she said, this is very interesting, and you should do something about it. And I couldn't find any publishers, because you can't find a publisher unless you have published something before, uh, and it has sold 50,000 books. Mm -hmm. Um, the whole publishing system is crazy in America, but anyway, so she gave me 12 names and she said, send this, uh, the manuscript to these 12 people and they will give you some feedback. Uh, and at that time there was no email, so I had to put, print these 12 people, you know, mm -hmm on one side of the page with one inch around double space in a, in a book, in a box and send it through the mail to these 12 people. And I got nine responses. And I think it was the fifth response, or the, yeah, fifth response, that said, oh, I like this book, but take out chapter nine or chapter 10, whatever, I forget what it was. The next day, I got another letter, and it said, I love chapter 9. Throw the rest <laughs> of it away and write it around, around chapter 9. So I realized I had to do this myself. Mm -hmm. I couldn't rely on other people's advice. So I, then I, that meant I couldn't find a publisher. I had to find a printer. So I went to the library in, in Langley. A uh, lovely place. They were very, very nice. They looked up all kinds of things for me. And so they said, so I looked for a printer and I found the printer was not too far away. And he said, come over and, and we, we have an all new equipment. So I came over and he showed me this, this plant very impressive, you know, all new machines, and I didn't know it took so many machines. But the way they make a book is they have a piece of paper that's 12 feet wide, and it's on a huge roll, and the, the pages of the book are like, this is page one, this is page two, this is page three, okay. and it page four is over here, and it, make, it, it prints a big square of paper, and then it's folded and folded and folded and folded and folded, and then they cut the edges off and you have the book. I understand. Mm -hmm. And, but he said, you don't have to worry about that because the computer does that. All you have to do is format the pages, everything, you know, every the line, every, every, the numbers on the page, where do you want them, how do you want them, what, what font you want to use, everything. So I did that, and then made the cover, and I brought it to him, and then a little while later he called me up and he said, well, we have, a, we printed one book for you to look at, and I looked at it and I didn't like the color on the front page, on the outside, page and so then they changed that and then he, he called me and he said bring a truck 
<laughs> that it's ready. And I said, oh yeah, I have a friend who has a, 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 what do you call it, a small, not, not a truck, but a... a pickup or... Pickup. Yeah. And so he said, no, 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 it has to be a truck. So I went with, I found somebody who had a truck and we went over there, it's a 50 mile away. And we loaded the truck and there were 56 books and every box was like this side and call, and they could put in 99 books. So 56 boxes with 99 books each. This is what? 56 boxes? Yeah. With 56. 99 books each. Okay. So that's... Fifty thousand books, something yeah. like that. Yeah. God, what am I going to do with it? <laughs> so I came back and I was living in a crummy little uh, mobile home by the big garage. And so the whole wall of the garage was full of these boxes. So what am I going to do all of a sudden? You know, you have, I have to sell it. I have to promote it. <laughs> So I sent, I thought the first thing I'd do is go to bookstores that I know and give them a little piece of paper that says this book is out and yes. if you want some, he, you know. And so I did that and I knew bookstores in, in Seattle and, and Vancouver and some other places and in Hawaii and waited for people to come and buy these books. Um, and it, it sort of sold, I don't know, I can't remember how many I sold, but, you know, it took several years, this, this was 1994, it came out in July of 1994, and um, so it, it was a matter of, you know, people would write me, and I would make a package of it and send them one book or five books or ten books or whatever they wanted. And uh, but pay the I had to pay the postage, of course. God, it was horrible. <laughs> but anyway, I never made any money on the book. But then in nineteen no in two thousand, so that's six years later. I was in the hospital, and when I came out of the hospital, I was living in a volcano at the time. Have you been to a volcano? Mm -hmm. Very charming, lovely town, wonderful place. And <laughs> I was in the hospital, and when I came out, I stayed with my other son. I have a son who lives there, and he was living in a house over there. This is a six-acre piece, Okay. family's land. Oh, nice. And so I, he said, oh, I have a present for, I have some mail for you. And he brought me this box. And in the box were two books by Tom Hartman. I had no idea who Tom Hartman was, but he was a famous writer. With two books of him, and uh, he said he had a letter that said, I've come across your book. And I want to do everything I can to promote it. Well, that was nice. I called him up and he said, how many books do you have left? And I said, I'm not sure, but I think I have five or six books left. 
to 500 books. Oh, he said, that's not enough. We have to find a publisher. So the next day, I got a call from a publisher. I didn't know anything about publishing or publishers. <laughs> and he said, yes, we're willing to publish that book, and you get $1,000. Um, and so they sent me this package, 17 pages of legal language, this contract. <coughs> I couldn't understand half of it, but so anyway, I signed it. And then they said, of course, it has to be edited. Well, I didn't know what editing was. And so I sent them the manuscript, and the editor, I, I discovered as we were working along, was interested only in the language, in the grammar, and in the spelling. And, <laughs> and obviously didn't understand what it was about, because I had one story in there. Well, it's, it's a long story. It's, 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 it's on my website. It's called Manuia, M-A-N-U-I-A. It's, it's about the, uh, well, and anyway, that's not important, but <clears throat> anyway, so it's about, a, a, there's a person in there in Samoa, yeah. she's Henrietta. And Henrietta is a high chief. They have chiefs in Samoa. And she's married to the high chief. But of course, in American Samoa, that doesn't count. And she's also chief of nurses. And I had to go, I got to know her and we became friends. In the other Samoa, there's a free Samoa, and there's an American Samoa. In the other Samoa, the high chief is the king, is the, is the ruler of the country, and his wife, who's also a high chief, is the, like, like the queen. Mm. So knowing Henrietta was an honor to me. It was an important element of the story. But when it came to the editor, she said, she, she, she left all of that off. And she said, this is too confusing. You know, she's the chief of nurses. I said, yeah, but she's also a high chief on her own right, and she's married to the high chief. No, 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 you can't put that in. So I took the story out. I was mad at that. <laughs> and she made other changes. Everywhere where, where I had three short sentences, she made one long, and if I had one long sentence, she made three of them. But anyway, she told me uh, my English was okay, but it was not Time Magazine English. And so she made it Time Ag Ag Magazine English. And people who have read both book, both versions, oh, and they changed the title, and they added a foreword from Tom Hartman. And Tom Hartman is a romantic, and there's two things in there that's simply not true. But I, I can't get Tom Hartman to change it, 
and the publisher can't cut, can't change it because it was part of the contract, which I didn't know. Mm -hmm. okay. So there are now five translations of the book, and um, everybody has to include the foreword to Tom Hartman. And then, and that, <laughs> I have to tell you one more strange story, and then I'm going to stop. Uh, about two months ago, three months ago, I had a call from somebody, and he said, my name is Mars. And I said, what is the last letter of that word? A Z, M-A-R-Z. And so he said, I'm coming to see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I said, okay, I'm going to be here. And he came at 10 o'clock. Awfully nice man. Uh, Mars is an Iranian name. And he says his family is not, was not, is Iranian, but with the revolution they went to Italy and then to the United States. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm rich. He owns a cell phone company. And we talked all day about, I mean like two hours, about the book. And he said, I like the first title much better. The first book is called What It Is To Be Human. And the second book is called... Uh, Original Wisdom. Yeah. And he said, I like the first title much better. He said, I'm going to buy that contract with you to publisher. I said, I don't think they will sell it to you because it's still selling. Well, I'm going to do that and reprint it as what it is to be human. Anyway, very nice, you know. The next day he calls and says, I'm coming at 10 o'clock with all my family. I said, okay. <laughs> so there were nine people in this house. Women with babies, two women with two babies, and men, women, I, I, I couldn't keep them apart. A lot, okay. a lot of people. Uh, it turned out not to be his family, but friends. Then I found out that not he, but his friend who lives in Bangkok, I found out later, has two, has a son who is married to a girl and they live over here on 9th, mm -hmm. this is 22nd, till 9th. And they're getting paid $16 an hour or $18 an hour to help me. I never met these people. And so the, the man, the boy, He's, to me, he's a boy, he's 39 years old, 38 years old, and the girl is 28 and they have two children. One is a baby and one is four years old. And so he's the one who helps me every now and then, you know. Whenever I need him to read something on the computer or translate something or he cleans the floors, uh, he works outside. So all of a sudden I have somebody who is helping me because my sons, I have two sons living here, mm -hmm. one right there, one and Scott. Uh, <laughs> and they're both working hard 
you know, because like Scott used to earn forty-five, fifty dollars an hour. Now he will, he earns twenty-five, so he has a hard time making it. So now I have this boy who helps. I call him boy, but he's thirty-eight years old, um, and he's a nice kid, but. I have to train him, you know, he doesn't know how to deal with a blind person. He rearranged my my freezer, by the way, mm -hmm. I found out this morning. I can't find anything anymore. <laughs> I know, you know, this is over here, this is over here, this is over here, but he has moved everything to put it in. Mm -hmm. But it's nice that, they, that all of a sudden this comes to me. It's strange, yeah. But things but like that. It's a good change. Is, is it, is it, how do you like this change? I mean, is it people coming to you? Yeah. It's amazing uh, it's a, it's because all, all my life, you know, this, these kind of things have happened to me. Yeah. I've had many miracles in my life. I mean, real miracles. Some very unpleasant, but. I was at the University of Hawaii. The first university I was professor was in California. I was associate research professor at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. And I was very lucky because I got into a group with a doctor who, from England, um, who was interested in deep ecology, as he called it really trying to understand, you know, what ecology is and what it does. And, and in ecology, everything is related to everything. Mm -hmm. It's like your brain. And that was a great, great, great thing to do. And they sent me to Malaysia, where there was a huge grant they had. And so the whole family went to Malaysia for two and a half years. And then after that, I had an offer from the University of Hawaii uh, to become professor at the university, uh, in the School of Public Health. Um, and I was, eventually I became the head of the Department of International Health. And I had to travel because we had this huge grant, a million dollars. Of the university gets forty-three percent of that off the top, but we still had five hundred and sixty dollars a year, and I spent most of it traveling. So I went everywhere, and everywhere I asked for native healing. You know, what what do you do on this island for native healing? So are there many, many kind of different of, of healers here, of native healers here on this mm -hmm. island? Or? Yeah. How much? Anyway, when, how this ended, I want, I will tell you one more story. Um, when I traveled, I had to travel on American-owned airlines because there was a federal grant. 
and they only went to either Samoa or Guam. Mm -hmm. And anything south of there, I had to go to other areas. So Guam and Samoa places, Pango Pango, the American Samoa, they're places where I had to overnight many times, you know, make a day, wait a day, wait two days. And so I went to Guam many times. And I knew somebody in Guam. She was a woman who was studying medicine when I was studying psychology in Ann Arbor. I didn't know her well, but she was, she was a friend. And she lived in Guam. She was head of maternal child health. And her husband is a judge. And um, so every time I came to Guam, I stayed in a hotel because I was getting paid for it. But the last dinner was always with them, and then they would take me to the airport. And the plane always left, the American plane, always left at one o'clock in the morning or midnight or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so one day I was there, it was 1977, I guess, 78. Um, I had dinner with them. And then the judge went into his room. And so she and I were sitting there having time between after dinner and 12 o'clock. And so we talked and talked and I knew she had had a blood clot in her left thigh. And she showed me a whole stack of x-rays that had been made, but that showed the blood clot, embolism. Um, it was very obvious. I mean, it changed a little bit, but it kept stay being there. And so she had made an arrangement with a hospital in the United States that they were going to do surgery and take it out. And so I said, on the spur of the moment, I don't know why I said it, but I said, would you like me do, to do a healing? And she, you know, sure, go ahead, you know, And so she lit on a carpet, and I don't touch people, but I, I go like that. I can feel, this hand is very sensitive, I can feel where there's something going on, and it's very obvious that there was something going on here. And so I, what I do is, I have a feeling that some energy comes through my hand and I can kind of focus it on what I feel. And what I think, what I say in my mind, is become as normal as you can be. I know that you can't, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can talk to your, I hadn't found out, you can talk to your body. And so I did that for 40 minutes or so. Nobody said anything. I didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. And eventually they took me to the plane. I got to Honolulu at 8 o'clock in the morning, went to work, didn't go home. Uh, at 2.30 in the afternoon, she calls me up and said, "I'm." I'm here in Honolulu, in Honolulu um, on the way to my hospital in America. 
with my x-ray <laughs> stack because I, w I had a phone call after we took you to the to the plane and uh, they said to come as soon as possible and so she went on Japan Airlines which went during the day but it's you don't you don't have time to come here and I don't have time to see you so goodbye and I said well bon voyage and go ahead I have no I didn't think about anything any after that two and a half weeks later my dean public health calls me up and says can you come down and I thought we were going to have lunch we were friends together but he put me on the chair on the other side of his desk and he asked me all kind of questions about my mother and my father and what they did what they had been and done and my training and I kept saying you, you know all this I mean we had had lunch many times. Yes. What is this about? So finally he says to me, do you know a doctor so-and-so? I said, yeah, of course. You know, I saw her a couple of weeks ago. Do you know that she went to the mainland? I said, yeah. Do you know that she had an embolism? I said, of course I did. I, of course I do know that. That's why she went to uh, to." to the mainland. He said, when she came to the hospital, she gave this whole stack of x-rays, but of course the hospital had to do her own x-ray. And their x-rays showed nothing. And so they did a blood test, and the blood test showed that she had never had an embolism. Something all of a sudden dawned on me mm -hmm. They must have asked her questions. At that moment, the door swings open, and I see all the six secretaries in the outer room, and the dean of the medical school walks in. And I knew the dean of the medical school, and he didn't like the School of Public Health because he thought public health should be part of medicine, which it isn't. And so, I had a course at that time, I have to go back a little bit. I taught, taught, had been teaching a course called Social and Cultural Aspects of Health and Illness. And it was a very popular course and I had a lot of students. I Sometimes I had to teach twice, two, two of them. Uh, and about half of the students were usually medical students. And so he came in to be at the medical school, red in the face. You, you, charlatan, da 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 da, bad words. And he said, "I'm going to see to it that no student ever will take a course, take any course from you. I'm going to sue you for practicing medicine without a license." I hadn't been. To, I know I. I looked at him and I knew I couldn't talk to him. So I walked out of the room. I'm not very good at, at confrontations, mm -hmm. like the Aborigines. So the next day, so I went home and I was really, you know, what should I do? Um, 
I don't, I don't think he was going to sue me because that would be stupid. But I, I really disliked the idea that medical students couldn't take my course because I had heard from one doctor, and he said, I took your course 10 years ago, and it, it's the only course that made it possible for me to be family doctor in Harlem, which is in, in New York. It's a Negro. Black, I'm sorry. It's a black area of New York. And so I knew that it was valuable to medical students. So the next day I went down to the dean, my dean, and I said, you know, it seems to me I have to quit. And he thought for a minute and said, the only thing I could suggest to you is that you wait a year and get at least uh, early retirement after 50, 15 years, I think, or 16 years, you can get early retirement. So I did that and it was the worst year of my life because it, it coincided with the end of my divorce. Mm -hmm. and so. But all my colleagues, all the other professors, kind of avoided me, you know, they didn't know what to think, what to do, what to say. Nobody asked me any questions. Everybody was kind of, you know... How old they, were you when that happened? Huh? How old were you when that happened? How much? How old were you? What age was that? In 79, I was 50. 55. Okay. And so, when I left, I, I had to leave Honolulu. I mean, my reputation was just, I, I was running a clinic at the time, and I had a radio program at the time, but there was this darkness around me, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I went to the mainland and I shipped my car to the mainland and when the car came I thought, what should I do? Where should I go? What, what's not my life going to be? Um, I knew I didn't want to go to the east coast or the midwest or the south. And so I had to go either to the southwest or the northwest. I had been to the southwest, so I decided to go north. So I went to the ocean and to the mountains and the ocean mountains. You know, where do I want to go? Finally, I got to Seattle after about a month, more than a month. And in Seattle, I realized that the, <laughs> my traveler checks had expired. Things were much cheaper than they are now. But, so I looked in the paper and I found an apartment nearby and I called this man and he said, don't go away, I'll be there right, right now in five minutes. So the man came, he showed me the apartment, I paid for one month's rent. Uh, I had one bag, big suitcase and one small suitcase and I went into an unfurnished apartment. By the unfurnished, okay. But it was, had a carpet. So I slept one night there, 
And the next day I decided I had to call my parents. I didn't know why, because I could have called my children. I should have called my children. Nobody knew where I was all the time. And I called my father, who was in Holland, and he said, oh, I knew you were calling because your mother had a stroke. Can you come over? I said, yeah, I can come over. I have nothing to do. So I went to a travel agency, and they told me the easiest way to go is to drive to Vancouver, and there is a direct flight from Vancouver to Amsterdam. It's like seven hours over the pole, and it's it, there's a and there's a motel uh, where you can park, where you could stay one night, and then parking is free, and they'll take you to the airport and pick you up. So I said, okay. So I did that. So I went to Holland, and my mother was getting better. And, uh, you know, everybody was shocked that I had given up my professorship. My mother was shocked. But, and so, then I went back, and when I came to Vancouver, the plane landed at 2.30 in the morning or something like that. And so I just started driving. And the drive from Vancouver to Seattle, or to this island, actually, was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It goes along the ocean, and you know, when the sun just comes up mm -hmm. early in the morning, it's August. Beautiful, beautiful place. So I knew that I wanted to go north of Seattle. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I was going to go, go north of Seattle. So I've been driving a couple of days. And so I came to a big sign over the freeway, you know, five lanes on the side, five lanes go over this way. Big sign to, to, to the ferry. I said, oh, that's nice, <laughs> go on the ferry. So I went on the ferry, 20 mile ride, and I got off on this island, Whidbey Island. Beautiful, I knew this is it. So I stopped at the first uh, real estate agent, and <laughs> there was this nice lady, and and I said I need a I want a cabin in the woods. She said where? I said well here, you know, on this island. She said yeah, but do you want on this side of the island or the other side, or on by the water or above the water or in the woods? She said, I suggest you spend a few days driving around and getting to know this part of the island and come back next Tuesday and I'll have five addresses for you. I said, okay. So I did that and she gave me these five addresses and I stopped at the first one, obviously not. The second one, I knew that was it. So I'm back to her. And I said, this is it. She said, boy, are you lucky. This woman left today to go to Florida for the winter. And she reduced the price $10,000. I think it was $50,000 for the house and land. Uh, and you have to pay, you can pay her. You don't have to get that mortgage. So it's all very easy. Mm -hmm. And I think I had to pay $125 a month. 
It was just crazy, you know. So I moved in. I found out there was no water. And I thought, well, maybe people on the mainland live like that. I don't know. And I went to the nearest town, Langley, which is like two miles away. It was in a wooded place. It was a beautiful woods, two acres, of fern trees, you know. And the house was small, but perfect for me. Um, and it was very beautifully located. And so I went to Langley every other day, and they had a park with a shower, and I brought some water and lived there. And then I found out that there was a well, that it was a hand-dug well, it was only 60 feet deep, and it had dried up. And there was a well house that was really cute, was overgrown with moss and all that stuff. And so I found out you could drill the well. I called the drillers and they came over and they said, well, we can drill in the, in the drill house. You know, it's nice, nice drill house and the lines are already in. But then we have to cut this tree and this tree and this tree. I said, no, you're not going to cut any trees. <laughs> well, okay, okay. And we can't come today anyway. Two <coughs> weeks from now, we come. So I said, okay. So I went looking for willow trees. I was going to douse for water. That didn't work for me. So I kind of forgot about it until the night before they were coming the afternoon before they were coming. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, I have to decide where they're going to drill. And I don't want them to try cut any trees. Mm -hmm. But I, by that time I really knew this place, you know, I knew every tree. And I knew what it felt like. Beautiful place. The house was nothing. But anyway, all of a sudden I thought, oh yeah, I know, it's over here. So I went outside and I took a branch and put it in there. And I looked at it and I thought, no, it's not over here, it's over here. So I put the stick over there. And the next day these two people come, and they two trucks. And I showed them this stick. And he wants to take it out, and I said, no, 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 leave it in. That's exactly where you cut, where you make the, the hole. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, okay. So I went inside, and oh, and, oh uh, and I told him, you can only go 148 feet, because that's all the money I have. They told me how much it was, so much per, per foot. And then on the top, there's a whole ton, bunch of things they have to do for the law, and they have to make the line to the house. So, but the, the feet was mm -hmm. so much a feet. Mm -hmm. So I figured out, you know, I had $4,000. And so they said, ha, do you know how much, they, how deep the, your neighbor is? The neighbor was two and a half miles away. 368 feet. This one is 270 feet. I said, yeah, but that's all the money I have. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. 
an hour later he comes through the door and he says to me, what are you, some kind of hex or something? We found Wilder at 147 feet and it's enough for two houses. It's where two aquifers cross. So I had water. And those things happened to me all the time after that. And I finally figured out in America, you know, the culture is like this, blindfolded. Yes. Goals and objectives. You know, you, you make a plan for yourself. This is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. And so I, I don't look anywhere else. I go straight ahead. The opposite is to go like this. Whenever there, you, you walk along and there's a door here, I look into the door. Maybe there's something that's interesting or nice yeah. or good. That's how I travel. That's my travel style. <laughs> yeah. And so I did all kind of things. I, I just... It really came to me, you know, from that time on. I live like an Aborigine. I was just, just thinking, um, you are very lucky that you were imprinted in I'm Malaysia or you know not in, at least not in America. I'm very lucky that I allowed myself to do that. Yes. And I, and I, I, I really, I know that it is because I have known the Aborigines. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how they lived. They didn't make plans. They didn't have goals and objectives. Mm -hmm. They lived where they could live. One more story and then I'll stop. <laughs> I enjoy your stories. I walked along one time with three boys. The oldest probably was... It's hard. I, I'm very, not very good about the ages, but... He was probably 17 or 18, and the other two were younger. And as usual, you know, they don't talk very much. But I always had this feeling that they were talking to each other. I couldn't prove that, but... You mean telepathically, or...? Huh? Not with words, talking, just yeah, silent? Yeah, but they were communicating with each other. Mm -hmm. Because every time I asked a question, there was a silence. And then one man would speak up, or a woman would speak up. And I knew that they had communicated with each other. Anyway, we were walking along, silent, and all of a sudden, all three of them stop, and I walk one step further. I have to go back, and I look at them. And the oldest boy says, Mati, which is Malay, and it, it means dead. And I looked at him and he said, I said, you're not dead. I didn't speak their language. I spoke Malay and they speak their language. But I understand them. They understand me. So I said, you're not dead. No, 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 that's not what they mean. And he said, again, Mati, like that, including the boys. 
And it comes to me that what they mean is we are dying out. And then when I think that, they all nod their heads. Mm -hmm. And I said, why are you dying? Why? What's, what makes you think you're dying out? And then I can't explain to you how I know that, but I know that they mean we are dying out as a species, as a, as a kind of person. And I say, why? Because the way we live is impossible now. And I think that's true. And they have died out. Yes. And they've died out all over the world. Not quite, but you know, in Malaysia, for instance, when we came, there was, we were given, Malaysia had been independent for like a year or two years when we were here. And um, we were given a piece of paper that said, you know, Malaysia is an Islamic state. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Indonesia is not, but Malaysia is. And the 50% of the population is Malay and all Malays are Muslim. 30% is Chinese, 20% is Indian, which means either from India or Pakistan, or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka. And they're mostly plantation person, you know, rubber plantation. And the Chinese have been there for 300 years, and they, are the little, they have the little shops and the stores. And the Malays are kind of, uh, well, the Malays. <laughs> anyway, and then in the middle of that piece of paper is a little thing like this. It says, and there are also Aborigines estimated at being 30,000, 30,000 Aborigines. And so I was very curious. I was everywhere I went when I traveled. I always tried to find the lowest people because they have the real culture. You know, they're not Western. They have the real culture. So I tried to find these Aborigines. Nobody knew anything about them. They didn't know where they were, who they were, what they were like. Nothing. And so. It was very frustrating, and I had lots of jobs because I had one official job to do research. But because I spoke Malay, all kinds of people asked me to be translator for them. And so, finally I went to a meeting, and there was this man standing in the corner, not taking part very much, and he was shorter than the Malays, and he looked kind of different. And so I went to him and talked to him and I said, are you Malay? And he said, well, yeah. He said, but my mother was Aborigine. Ah, can you tell me how to reach her? I want to find out who they are, what, you know. And he said, well, she travels a lot. She walks around a lot. Um, it's difficult to translate languages. 
But he said, I can tell you where she was six months ago, the last time I saw her. You go to the road that goes across the Malay Peninsula, to kilometer 168, I think, or some, some kind of thing, and there's a Chinese store, you can park the car there, and they will show you the path. I said, okay. And so next Saturday, I went with a friend, he was a Malay boy, but he was Chinese. Uh, he was a nice kid. So we went to the kilometer 168, and that was a Chinese store, and they said, oh yeah, you can park your car here, and th there is the path. So we went on the path, and this is jungle. A jungle is dark, it's not, it's not what you think, you know, it's not wild. It's dark because all the green is above. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we were walking along the path. The path was pretty obvious. There's only one place where we doubted, but pretty obvious where the path was. And we must have walked for about an hour. And uh, all of a sudden there was an open place. When a big tree falls, it's open and it's light. And so we stood there for a minute and we could hear voices, not singing exactly, but la -di -da -di -da -di -da -di -da -di you know, like that. People sort of wandering around. So we thought that was probably the settlement, the place that we were looking for. So we walk on, and then the path goes like this, and we come to this little tiny open place, and there's three huts. Very primitive house, bamboo, tall, very flimsy, <laughs> not a soul inside, no person, no babies, no kids, no dogs, nothing. So we decided to sit down, and we had decided before that we would sit down on the floor rather on the ground rather than stand up because we're taller than they are. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down, I remember leaning against one of those poles and must have slapped and rested for 20 minutes or so. And I see this face peeping around the tree. And a wonderful face, full of wrinkles. Not wrinkles for old age, but full of laughing or smiling. Expression. Yeah, you know, it was really what, and then I smiled at him and he smiled back and he came out and I talked to him in Malay and he said he didn't speak Malay and he said he answered something but somehow I could understand and, and he could understand what I meant. We're coming, we just want to get to know you. And we had very consciously dressed very simply, tennis shoes. Um, I didn't have anything with me, no camera, no recording, nothing. And so gradually, you know, other people came out. There were ten people in that place, two children. And so we spent the whole afternoon there doing this strange communication, you know in two languages, 
I don't know whether you can understand that, but it's true. You know, we did communicate. And so then we left, and before we left, there was one man, an older man, who spoke some Malay. And he said, you know, when you have time, you should go to another settlement that I know of, because they would like to get to know you too. And he told me, you go to another road and kill me the so-and-so, and they would show you their path. So the next day of the day, I went by myself. And from then on, everywhere I went, they would tell me, oh, go somewhere else, go somewhere, to go over here, go over there. And everywhere I went from that time on, there was somebody on the path before I came to the place. I think it's in the book. Yeah, I've got that. And I couldn't understand what, how they knew, because they have no phone. I can't tell them when I'm coming. I don't know when I'm coming. I had a family. I had a job. Usually it was Saturday or Sunday I could go. Sometimes I took an afternoon off. But I was busy, you know, I had three jobs, four jobs. So it was, the whole thing was... Uh, How could they possibly know? Huh? How could they possibly know that you would yeah, become... Yeah, how could they possibly know? I finally found out that they didn't know it was me but they knew that something was coming down the road. They didn't know it was me coming. Mm -hmm. But they knew me. They'd never met me, but they'd heard about me. There was a time when they called me Kagaj, I think. That's what I remember the word was. But I knew it meant elephant. And it made me unhappy. I didn't like to be an elephant. And I thought maybe because I'm so big, or maybe it's because I'm heavy, you know, my footsteps is... So I didn't know what they meant. But I was staying overnight at a new place. There were two huts, one here, one here. And I went into one hut about 5, 30, 6 o'clock, and there was a woman and a boy. I don't know whether they belong together, but they don't belong together. But. And we were sitting there waiting because we knew there was another person coming in. And as we were sitting there, all of a sudden these two just freeze. And then the boy comes to me and says, Gosh, gosh, there's elephant. And I knew elephants in the wild, and they really, they, you can't hear them. They're very, very quiet, you know, you can't hear the footsteps. And so I thought, I kind of listened, and I imagined that I could imagine that there were three, maybe four elephants walking between these huts. And all of a sudden, there's like somebody touches our heart. And I know that an elephant, they could, with their, with their nose, they could have just 
you smashed the heart. And it wasn't like that, it was just very, very little bit, like somebody went like this, touching. Very gently. And the boys throws themselves on my lap. And they said, they know you're here. <laughs> and I listened. Then the man, about half an hour later, no, less than that, 20 minutes later, the man comes in and he calls me Ba-Wu. He doesn't call me Kagash anymore. How does he know? Ba-Wu is, Ba means man or mister, and Wu is what they think of both. And from that time, everybody calls me Ba-Wu. See, I mean, how do they know that? You know, there are levels of knowing that um, for civilized people are hidden. I don't know. I'm Usually. Kidding. But elephants... And, but um, you know, when, when you allow yourself... I have had other experiences like that with Western people. They know things and I know things that they, I can't possibly know. Exactly. And they are so open to, to silence. Yeah. You know, they hear, they hear knowledge then. They hear what they need to know. What is your background? My background. I mean, what, what do you do? <laughs> Where have you been? I'm doing very different things to what I'm talking about now. Mm. Or I have done very different things. Speak, I have, speak, I have, speak a little slower and speak <coughs> up because my hearing is bad. I've worked a lot with computers the last years, but um, what I'm really doing, what I'm really interested in is I'm observing what's happening around us. I'm watching people, I'm watching civilizations, I'm watching mm -hmm. what's happening, you know. I'm making conclusions and I'm finding solutions. And I'm very, very interested in indigenous people, yeah. their wisdom and their, yeah, their, their lifestyle. Mm. I, I, like, I like elephants a lot because they're very sensitive animals, you know. They have big feet, but they're incredibly sensitive. Mm. They, they feel every vibration. It's the smallest vibration. And you find the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Caring and sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the only future that's sustainable. Is if we can go back to that openness, you know, where where we accept things as they are, where we accept each other as we are. Um, that sound is very good at that. You know, um, <clears throat> I have I I've observed humanity, and I'm I'm mm -hmm. looking at history, and not mm -hmm. not only five thousand years, you know, mm -hmm. many more years. Yeah. The history that they are trying to hide from us. Yeah. And I I came to the conclusion that um, we are in some cycle of evolution. What mm -hmm. you're saying about the the wisdom and the knowledge that, mm -hmm. that the Aborigines had, and that is getting gradually less and less and less yeah. 
and there is a, has a culture has come in the has just only this tunnel look you know only looking like that instead of this yeah. but this is changing again to this and it's it's for me it's I mean I'm young for me it's so exciting to see how things are getting better they are trying to hide that from us mm -hmm. they are only telling us the bad stories about war and death and destruction and all this stuff you know but there is so much positive out there and that, that, that helps me a lot to get this ancient wisdom, this Aboriginal wisdom, you know, to get it in so that we can grow into this again. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's still in us. It is. Underneath all this, you know, PhD and all that stuff. Yes, it is. It's still in us. It is not lost, it is still there. We just need to reactivate it. Yeah, it's and I, I like this a lot about about your stories. This um, mm -hmm. that is very special. So do you travel? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have been here in Hawaii for four weeks. Mm. I needed to go away from the winter, you know, from the snow. <laughs> have you been to the South Pacific? Yes, I lived in Australia and New Zealand for two years. Mm. Islands? Mm. On Fiji. Mm. I've been on Fiji, yeah. I love the islands, you know, and I love the people. Um, my my daughter-in-law over there is from the Marquesas, which is French Polynesian. Yeah, yeah. And, um, God, I love Polynesian people and, and Melanesian people. But this island with 24 people on it. Well, the other island was, you know, had 100 people on it, which is nothing. And when you have 100 people, you know, there's no government, there's no leader. You don't need it. Mm -hmm. There's no rules. You make your own rules, and the, you, you're close to nature, you're, you're in nature, you're part of nature. You know, sometimes I find it very funny how different nations can be, mm -hmm. or the identity part, you know. Mm -hmm. People ask me all the time, where are you from? As if this tells something about my identity. This is just a joke, you know. I mean. And um, then they know that and they turn around and mind their business. Mm -hmm. I mean, has, has this information changed them in any way? It has not. Yeah. But nations or people from nations can be so different. Their culture is so different, you know. That's, that's interesting. That fascinates me. Yeah. How old are you? Forty. See, it's, yeah. Yes, the woman who came yesterday asked me whether I had contact with younger people because she says, you know, these thoughts are coming back with young people. And I have. I think young people are, are different to the younger generation. Yes, and uh, luckily they are. 
we would die out. Marty. You know, Marty. No. Yeah, the war was something of World War II was under German occupation. That was really... It was such a shock to me because I grew up in a very peaceful world um, with many different kinds of people. You know, the Malays were the majority, but there were Indians and black people and, you know, other people. Um, it was a wonderful way to grow up. Mm -hmm. Except my problem with my mother, but <laughs> or my mother with me, I don't know. Were you the only child? They're from, from the Netherlands, but my mother was from a northern province, Groningen, um, back to the Vikings. Um, but both, of the, both my mother and my father were typical European intellectuals. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother had bookcases full of magazines, expensive, and about all kinds of things, art and architecture and stuff like that. My father was Jewish, but not not practicing Jewish, you know, integrated, it's called in Holland, but uh, he, I don't think he ever went to a synagogue, but it was a Jewish family. But he had an interesting family, but his grandmother, I think, or great-grandmother, was from the Pyrenees between France and Spain. But, um, I've never liked Holland. I've never liked the Netherlands. I don't know why exactly, but... People are very pleased with themselves. <laughs> but they're good people, you know. They're very social. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, you don't have to be worried about being poor in Holland. Nobody's poor. Mm. My sister died in September of last year, very unexpectedly. She had the same thing, same eyes, but I don't know what what happened exactly. But where where was she living in Holland? Yeah, I mean, I was never very close with my sister, but, you know, we grew up in the same place, but she grew up very differently, mm -hmm. maybe because she was a girl, but she didn't relate to the Malays as I did, and she didn't, she doesn't relate to animals as I do. <laughs> I don't eat meat because I object to growing animals to be eaten. You know, I know that life eats life, mm -hmm. but uh, 
Occasionally, Tom will kill a, a pig. We have wild pigs here and wild chickens, but I don't like chicken. But if they kill a wild pig and they slaughter it, I will eat that. And I eat fish if it is fresh caught mm -hmm. in, in Alaska. I don't eat fish that is from the East Coast because that, that's a farm fish. And farm fish are push, pushed full of antibiotics and all the chemicals and yeah. stuff like that. No, I, I'm trying to live like an Aborigine, which is impossible, of course, because I have to rely on money and on buying food. I used to, before I couldn't see, I, I ate mostly what grows around here. I know the leaves are eligible, edible. And uh, I grew, I, you know, I grew around and picked some leaves here and there. And we have lots of fruit. And we have sweet potatoes growing wild. Mm -hmm. And I buy some fish. But, but now I, I can't walk very well, and so I, I have to go to sh shops and buy things. It bothers me. <laughs> Yeah, I understand. I know what you mean. Wanting to live, wanting to live in a way that's is harder and harder to do so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I know. That was a nice, nice um, part of living in a community, you know? Yeah. When younger people cared for the older people in, in the group, like with mm -hmm. the Aborigine you said. Yeah, I like Hawaii. I think Hawaii is a very good place. When I first came, when we first came in 1963, uh, <laughs> I tried to learn Hawaiian because I thought when I live here, you know, all the street names and everything, it's Hawaiian, the name, names of the towns are Hawaiian. I want to learn Hawaiian. I couldn't because Hawaii had been uh, owned by the United States, but it wasn't a state until 1959. And during that time that they were, um, what do you call it, annexed. During that time, which is from 1899 to 1956, Hawaiian was forbidden, the hula was forbidden, you couldn't do that. And so it hadn't come up yet. But then since then, there's a sort of a Hawaiian renaissance. And now you can learn Hawaiian. And so I tried to learn Hawaiian, but I was too late, you know. I, I used to know eight languages. Now I can only speak four. I found out that scientists found out that all children in the world born can learn the language that is spoken around them until they're four years old. Mm -hmm. And if you learn more than one language before you're four years old, then it's much easier to learn another language afterwards. It is. 
So when that boy was born, the father is American, although he's born in Suriname, but, and his wife is Marquesan. But she learned Hawaiian easily because they have both Polynesian languages. The sentence construction is the same. The, pro the pronunciation is a little different. But that boy speaks four languages now. Mm -hmm. How old is he? He's 18. And he's a real Polynesian. He's very tall, beautiful, curly hair, beautiful guy. Very lovely guy, wonderful guy. And everybody is so busy. They're driving around here and there and do this and do that. And I used to do the same thing, but I can no longer drive, of course, so I, I sold my car. I had an old car, 15 years old, but I sold my car to pay the right, the, the roof for the house that Scott built over there. Scott built his own house. See, he, he's built five houses now, but he had a house in Volcano that was absolutely gorgeous, I mean, beautiful. The work was beautiful. Four bedrooms, two bathrooms, three bathrooms, two with jacuzzis because his wife is very demanding. She wanted this, she wanted that. The living room is huge. The ceiling is all wood, you know, beautiful. And three acres of, of trees. Just gorgeous. When it was finished, the county assessed it as $500,000, $495,000. And so that, was, that meant that the taxes would be very high. And so he protested and they changed it to $395,000. And then the crash came. Now it's worth $200,000. And nobody's interested in me even buying it. And so he stopped paying mortgage on it. He couldn't afford it. He lost his jobs and he couldn't work. So he had to move somewhere. So he moved here on this family land. It's six, six acres we own. I don't own anything. I don't like to own anything. So it's, that's a beautiful house, but I sold my car to pay for the roof. <laughs> I think owning is the first thing that went wrong. You know, when you go to even indigenous people, everywhere, including the Hawaiians. The idea of owning land is impossible. You know, you can occupy a land, but you can't own it until we Westerners come along. I agree. How about, how about um, owning thoughts? How about what? Owning thoughts. Yeah, you, <coughs> you can own you can possess things, but you can't own it. Um, no, I mean, uh, what's about what you have in your mind, you know, when you get ideas? How about owning that? Basically, 
and speaking about copyright. I find it ridiculous, I personally. I do too. I do too. Um, I find it ridiculous and that's why I never charge anything for my books. You know, if people say I want a book, I say I give it to them. No, I, I agree. I mean, I don't own, I don't want to own land in Hawaii, and so I don't own this house. I'm paid for it, but I don't own it. But my ex-wife is really into owning. My ex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's like a disease that that is in people. It's something we learn from our culture. But that, that this is what gives us value. But you need to make your own experiences and live your life to understand that this is not the value, not the real value. Yeah. You know, I when I was knew these Aborigines. I found out that they, they didn't know the they couldn't understand what owning meant. And so I I tried to find out, you know, what they what they thought. But they couldn't understand what owning was. That something something is mine and I can sell it or I can give it to my children. It just didn't exist. So I've thought a lot about that, and I realized that when we invented owning, immediately there begins to be a hierarchy. You know, I own and you don't, so mm -hmm. I'm be better than you. Mm -hmm. And then now we have hierarchies within hierarchies within hierarchies within hierarchies, and governments within governments within governments within governments. And it's a mess. It's a complete mess. In America, we have states, and every state has its, own, has its own constitution and its own laws, and it conflicts with the neighboring. Ugh, it's just, you can't live that way. How do we solve that? How do we fix that? I don't know. I think learning is much more important than teaching. Teaching is, is really, influencing people, you know, teaching is putting information in your head. It's not something you invent, your, you, you learn yourself, but it's what other people's thinking. I'm really against education. You know, in, in Malaysia, even now, but when we were there in the 1960s, but so it's like 30 years after I left Malaysia, left Indonesia, we were in Malaysia. The same culture. You take people as they are, including children. When, chil when children are born in Malaysia, they're carried by people the first two years of their life by everybody in the village, by the father, the mother, the, the other children, neighbors, everybody, because they, they feel that 
skin on skin is very important for mm -hmm. growing up. Mm -hmm. And when you, the child can walk and talk, he is a person. And so you accept what this person tells you. And that means that nobody in Malay culture, original Malay culture, things have changed, but and the change have changed because of, of Saudi Arabia. But uh, <laughs> nobody can tell another person what to do. Mm -hmm. And you can tell you cannot tell a child what to do. And so a few years after the origin after their independence, the Malaysian government started schools in four different streams, as they called it. In Malay, in Chinese, in Indian, which meant Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, and Chinese. And <laughs> the Malay children went to school when they wanted to. When they didn't feel like it, they just didn't go. And their parents didn't do anything. Of course, you can't tell other people what to do. And so there were big debates and problems. And, you know, they came to the village and they talked to the children. And I remember what, several times a woman, the, the Malay government was given, Malaysian government, were starting to make clinics. And of course, the clinic has to be on the road because the doctor and the nurse has to be driving to the clinic. And the clinic usually is a concrete building and there's a waiting room with two benches like this. Mm -hmm. And then behind that is a screen and behind it is the doctor and the nurse. And so this woman takes a child to the clinic. She walks to the with a child to the clinic, and when she gets to the clinic, she gets a number, of, she gives her name, but she doesn't want to go, wait, wait in the waiting room because it's full of sick children, uh, sick people. And so she thinks, if I sit there, I'm going to get sick or my child gets sick. So she walks, she waits outside. Finally, her name is called, she goes in, the doctor looks at her, and the doctor says the child needs an injection. And so the woman tells the child, the doctor wants to take a needle and put it in your arm, and it doesn't hurt very much, but it hurts a little bit, and it might help you feel better. Do you want an injection? And the child says, no. The woman takes the child's arm and walks out. No argument, no talk. The, the nurse and the doctor scream. Hey, 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 hey. But they walk away. Yeah, there's a sovereignty. There's a sovereignty. That's what they have taken from us, mm -hmm. you know, in the Western culture. There was a woman from the World Health Organization that came to Malaysia. She had a slideshow. And so I, I was given the job of being her translator. So we go around with a, with a sheet and a generator and a projector and all that stuff. And so we go to the different villages. 
and her job is to tell the people of Malaysia that they should give the children more vitamin A because there's a blindness going on. If you, get, if you don't get enough vitamin A, the children get blind. And so this woman has this whole thing planned. And at some point she says, and it's very important that your child eats enough spinach. Spinach is one of the things, the papaya and tomato and so forth. And so when she comes to that, a woman in the audience stands up and she says, the child in Malay and in Indonesian, you cannot say my, it doesn't exist. You, have, you, uh, you cannot say my wife, my house, my child. So she says, the child doesn't like spinach. And the woman from the World Health Organization gets all excited and she says, oh, I'll tell you something. You know, when you cook rice, you take some spinach and you cut really fine and you mix it in with the rice. And when the rice is done, you can barely taste it. And the woman shakes her head and she said, the child doesn't like spinach. You know, there's no argument. A year later, I come back to the same village. And the girl, who was four years old, she's now five years old, she comes to me and she said, how much spinach should I eat? I said, well, not very much, but now and then, you know, take a spoonful or two, or two spoons. She thinks about it and she says to her mother, the next time you have spinach, give me a, a spoonful. So she, the child makes the decision. Very healthy. Yeah. This is really that, That's very how healthy. it should be. Yeah. There was another village. I had, I had this big project going on, and there were three villages that I visited every week. And so I really got to know these people. I was there, and um, <laughs> every now and then somebody would say, I wish that bridge was back in the, in the river back behind the village. Because I had that, there was some land over there I used to grow some things. Nobody said anything. In every Malay village, there is a Kapala Kampong. Kapala means head, and Kampong means village. So I thought, you know, the head of a village is the leader of the village. And the leader can say, hey, man, let's get that bridge back. Because they built it before, they know how to do it. But he cannot tell anybody what to do. And I found out the Kapala Kampong doesn't mean leader at all. What does it mean? It means the face of the village. Okay. Okay. Every now and then, you know, in a district that villages meet, and this person represents this village. And so they choose him to be a nice-looking, healthy, nice, good marriage, children. Uh, you know, we are this kind of people. So I kept thinking, you know, why doesn't somebody stand up and say, let's break the bridge?
but I know what will, what will happen. Somebody will start with a, fr with a friend, two people. They will start doing something for this bridge. And then the other people will come and do it. But nobody can tell another person what to do. In another village, I visited many times. One time I was there at noon. <laughs> Everybody's under this big tree, kind of half asleep. Children lying around there. And I look around and I see this man behind the tree, running to the next tree. Hiding, 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 running to the next tree. I said, who's that? Oh, he's a thief. Thief? Yeah, he likes to steal things. What does he do with them? Well, there's nothing he can do with them. He just leaves it. Sometimes he brings them back. <laughs> but the idea of doing anything about <laughs> it never occurs to anybody. But they have a word for that, for yeah. thief. I mean, he's a thief, you know. <laughs> I go to another village on the east coast of the Malay Peninsula. And as soon as I get out of the car, here's this old lady who comes juggling up. And she lifts up her skirts and she pisses on the floor. And then she comes to me and she holds out my hand. Ha, 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 laughing, 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 laughing. I know she's crazy. Nobody notices, nobody says anything, so I don't know either. I see that. Until a young man comes up, a boy actually, and he says, come on grandma, I found some water. And she goes with him. Nobody at that time, there were no malaise in the two mental hospitals they had. 50% of the population. Nobody, there is no Malay in that, either of those hospitals. That's in the book, I think. Mm -hmm. they, I'm interested in those kind of things, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. the cultures. And they're so interesting, they're so interesting how, how people arrange to live together. And I think their way of living together is much healthier than ours. We have made life so complicated and dangerous and difficult. Yes, so many rules and... Like the laws we have here, you know. When I moved into this little house 12 years ago, I wanted to have solar panels. And so I called the electric company and I said, uh, you know, I, I want electric, but I also want to have solar panels that feed back into the net. And they said, oh, we don't like that. If you do that, we'll pay you half, but you pay for us for the same kilowatts. Mm -hmm. Well, forget it. You know, <laughs> so I didn't do that. This is very expensive. And the, the trouble, that's what the trouble they have now on the mainland. There are many, many states where they are promoting solar panels and the electric companies are all against it. <laughs>
Yeah, of course. I mean, it eats so much, and you know, it eats what it says. They should do what they did in Germany. You know, you make a law. <laughs> Uh, you pay the same thing as you used to pay the electric company. You pay us to pay off, and we will install the solar panels. And in, in, in a few years, you know, they have so much electric in, in Germany, they export it to other countries. But we have such a messed up government in this country. Oh. Horrible. I talked too much. Huh? No, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, Robert. So, how did you how did you meet uh, did you meet uh, Clinton Keller? How did that work? How did you meet Clinton Keller? <laughs> how did I what? How did you learn to meet Clinton Callahan? I don't know. It just happened. It just happened? Yeah. I mean, well. he, he teaches a lot about new cultures, you know, and new sustainable behavior and how we change. I've always been very trusting, you know. I don't fear anything. I remember we we had a driver, a chauffeur, um, who was sort of my second father. His name is Udin. And, um, and he was a very important person in my life. And about eight months before the end of my high school years, my father got another job and we moved to Jakarta. And I had to work very, very hard for that exam, so I don't know very much about Jakarta and the school I went to. But um, when we left Maidan, where we lived, uh, I still remember, I now remember, driving there with Udin and my parents were sitting in the back. My mother had a hat on. My father was all dressed up and we were all dressed up, my sister and I. And we were sitting in these seats that come out from, from the front. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Udin was driving. And so we walked, we drove onto the pier and the boat was there. And my father went to get some bears or people to get the baggage on the boat. And so we were standing, my mother and my sister and I were standing beside the car. And my mother said, you better say goodbye to Udin, you won't see him anymore. Udin wasn't going to whip, go over with us. And all of a sudden I got tears in my eye and I looked down. I couldn't look at him and then I looked at him and I saw that he also was moved. So I stuck out my hand and instead of shaking my hand, he took my hand in both of his hands and I just burst out. And I cannot remember anything after that moment. 
I cannot remember getting on the boat. I cannot remember arriving in Jakarta. I cannot remember how we got to this house. Nothing, absolutely gone. And after the war, and so that was in 1938, 1938, and in 1945, 1946, no, it was later, it was like in 1960 something, I went to Holland to visit my parents. Every two years I would go to Holland to visit my parents. And my father said, you know, there's a strange disease that's coming up and there are clinics all over Holland. 25 years after the war, people are beginning to remember things from the war and they're breaking down. And so there are clinics. I think maybe you should go to one of those clinics. And I said, oh no, I can't. I have a job and I have to go back to America. So I didn't go. And a year later, on July 4th, I was, we were living in Lanikai in Honolulu. I don't know whether you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's on the other side of the island. And Lanikai is a very fancy neighborhood. with the most beautiful beach in the world and a reef. And we had a house, big two-story two house. Um, and it, it was July 4th, which is Independence Day in the United States. And there was the, you know, the RDs, the, the Navy and the airport, Air Force have these teams of fighter planes that do these acrobatic... Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I don't know what... Shows. Mm. Yeah. And, but they do it on the Honolulu side. But then they came on our side to return, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the family was all on the beach to watch this. And I was at home on the backyard. We had a small backyard. And one plane came over. I swear it was less than a thousand feet above my head. And for some reason, this, yeah, enormous noise brought back, broke something in me. I don't know how to call that, but I screamed and screamed and, and rolled on the ground and I, everything. All the memories from the war came back at the same time. I was caught by the Gestapo one time. As, anyway. Um, so I was just crazy, I really, really broken down. So finally I could, I got back fairly normal. I took a shower, went to bed. And the next day I went to a psychiatrist that I knew, he was very famous, and I told him the story and I said, I need some help. And he told me he can't do anything about it because he doesn't know. Um, but he said, there is a man who gives workshops in primal scream. <laughs> I don't know, he, he was an anthropologist, he's still here, but he lives on Maui. Um, so I went to him and he had a big 
gymnasium, I think it was, with leather on the walls and leather on the floor, no furniture, and leather pillows. And he had groups of people and they talked about their problems and, uh, you know, they could beat on these pillows and get the primal scream. So I went to one of these groups and did nothing to me, of course. So he said, okay, I'll give you my Tuesday. Come at seven o'clock in the morning and the night before, don't, don't do any um, pleasant things, you know, don't drink, don't smoke dope, uh, look at albums if you have them from the war. And then, so, don't sleep and come at 7 o'clock. So I came at 7 o'clock and he put me down, lying down, and he says we're going to do age regression. Well, I had done that before and I knew how to do that. So we did an age regression and all of a sudden, totally unexpected, instead of the war, this this Udin came back to me and I had not thought about him or that scene on the on the cave with the boat for I don't know 30, 40 years, something like that. And so Udin came back to me and the man, I don't know what I forget his name, Ian or something. He says, Can you talk to Udin? I said, oh, yes. And all of a sudden, I, I could speak perfect Malay, and he talked back to me in my head, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he said, why are you so troubled? And I said, I've always been troubled because my skin is white and my soul is not white. Mm -hmm. And then he has a pause. And he says to me, Pulit Pulkulit, which is a very Malay way, way of talking. It's a, it's a balance, you know. Kulit means skin, but it also means the bark of a tree. Any kind of package, it's the package. And Pun means but. The, the package is only the package. You know, what's in it is, can be totally different. You can have a bag of diamonds, but you put it in a, in a paper bag and it looks like nothing. He said, pull it, pull, pull it. And that has to have been my, my sort of favorite. Yeah, Indian, an Indian elder once said to me, you don't judge a book by its cover. No. no. I, on my refrigerator I have another Malay saying that is Bukarja Sama Dan Sama Sama Bukarja which is the same kind of uh, Malay poetry I think. And it means you work, but kerja is, kerja is working, 
Bekerja is work, you know, the concept of work. Indonesia has pre and post and post things that you add to the word. Bekerja sama means you work together, you, you work with, together you work. Meaning something like if you work with, you work with a stranger and when you work together, and you, you get to be together, you know, you become friends. That's what it means. Bukhja Sama, Sama Sama Bukhja. And Sama Sama is always spelled Sama too. Mm -hmm. okay. <coughs> I love languages yeah. because they're like a, an opening to a culture. To how people think, how people, how people's reality. Yeah, language is energy of an, of a culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's energy, and it's it's. Uh, yeah, it's a culture, you know. How long are you gonna be here? In Hawaii. In Hawaii. Mm -hmm. One more week. Wow. And then? I'm flying back. Where are you going? I live in Switzerland. Switzerland. Mm. The German translation of the book came from Switzerland. Thank you, Robert. What part of Switzerland? Did well, I, I, I am from Germany, actually, but I live in near, near Zurich. The German part or the French part? The German part. Yeah. yeah. It's Good. like the northeast, the north yeah. of Switzerland. Yeah, I've been to Switzerland several times. You know, Udin taught me to drive when I was 12. Uh, he says, when you pass your puberty, you're a man and you have to know how to drive a car. And my father was appalled. He said, you know, he's too young. He's not big enough. No, he has to learn to drive. So he taught me how to drive, how to, to do the switch. You know. mm -hmm. <clears throat> I never got a driver's license, and after the war, there were some Americans who had come to Holland. Uh, Ed and Mary Bodie. They were from Hollywood. They were per they were the quintessential Americans. Totally uninterested in anything that had happened during the war or in Holland or culture or anything. They were not interested. But they wanted to go to Switzerland and they wanted to drive. Well, it was the only way to go at the time after the war. And they said, you drive. I said, I, I don't have a driver's license, but the, the, apparently they don't, didn't have them. <laughs> and so I drove that car from Holland to Switzerland to Basel. 
Oh yeah, they said you have to drive the car because she speaks French. We were coming through French, France. And so I drove. And um, <laughs> so we got to Basel and they wanted to go to Geneva. Geneva. Um, and I wanted to go to Zurich because I wanted to talk to, to Dr. C.D. Jung, who is a very famous man, you know. So they took the car and I took the train and I went to Dr. Jung <laughs> and the housekeeper, I guess, came to the door and said, the, doc the doctor says, she's nobody. Because there was, I found out later, there was a rumor that he had been helping the Nazis or something like that. Um, I don't think that's true, but I don't know. And and then she slammed the door. So I rung the bell again, and I said, please try again. I come all the way from Holland. I have studied psychology, da 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 da, da. And she said, no, nobody. And so finally I said, well, maybe doc the doctor can tell me another psychologist I can see while I'm here in Zurich. And so she said, okay. And so she went inside, and she gave me this little card to another psychologist who was a um, he was a specialist in what I can't remember what they call it types typology something like that whether the physical type you are is related to your psychology something mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd heard of him I had read some books about from him. So I went there, and I remember he spoke English to me, which is very thoughtful, because it was after the war, and German was not very good with me. And so <laughs> I said, okay, and he said, would you mind if I do some measurements on you? And I said, no, I'm, I'm here, you know, I work for Canada. So he measured all the bones, you know, from here to here, and this way, and my hands, and my everything, my head. He spent a lot of time with it. He had a thing that measured this, and this, and that, and this, and you know, and this, I remember. And he wrote it all down in, in his book. And then he sat down and looked at it, and. He said, you know, you are dysplastic. I said, what does this mean? And he said, well, from the waist down, you're a man that weighs 200 pounds. It's 100, 100 kilo. Mm -hmm. And above the waist, you're a man who weighs 50 kilo. And your head, I can't make up at all. It's no type at all that I've ever seen. It's dysplastic. And he said, it will show up when you get older. And it certainly has. <laughs> so all my life I've lived with this idea that I'm... He, he made a joke of it, he said, when God put you together, he didn't have all the pieces, and so he took uh, out of this heap 
and uh, you, your, heat, your hip came from here, and your shoulders came from here, and your head came from here, and he put it all together, and that's you. <coughs> I don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I've lived with all my life. It's like some gambling, huh? And I have a very high IQ because when I was studying psychology, everybody was making new, new IQ tests, and I was always they always tested it on the students, you know. And all the, I always was off the off the, off the board because they couldn't figure it out. Yeah, it's such an interesting life. You know that? Very unique. Well, I don't know. My mother and I didn't get along very well. My father I got to know after my mother died. My father was a very interesting man. He was a doctor doctor. In Holland you can get a doctoral degree in medicine. My mother was a frustrated intellectual, I think, or European. I've noticed that women have a harder time being in, the, in, in a strange country than men. Because um, my mother didn't speak the language very well, and she wasn't interested in the, in the Malay people. Um, How was she integrated? Hmm? Was she integrated in any way? Well, yeah, I don't know. When she died, I, I, was, I was there the day before she died. And then I had to go back to America. But, so my sister and my... Now I'm not going to tell you that she didn't like me very much. She always told me what a hard birth I had been. You know, um, I have made experiences that family members sometimes don't behave like family. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's hurtful. But yeah. it is. I wanted to thank you. Life is interesting and, di and different and I, I don't know. I never thought I would get to be this old. I, I wasn't supposed to be this old. But it's, it's a very good sign, you know. Huh? Not, it's a very good sign. Not everybody gets this old. I mean, in many cultures, growing really old is a sign of great luck. Oh, yeah. It's often a blessing that you get, you know, may you get old. Like in Buddhist cultures, you get as often as a blessing. I read once about a Balinese man who got to be 101 or something like that. And, um, and people really, really honored him, you know. People took care of him. 
And then he knew exactly when he was going to die. And he said, he told him what to do and what to do, how to burn him and all that stuff. I, I don't know when I'm going to die, but I feel, I, I hope I'm not going to get to 101. I don't want to be on 101. I've been around death all my life. Even as a child, you know, the mother of one of my parents' friends, I mean the wife of my, another doctor, uh, got sick, wasting away. And so the Malay people told me that she was, there was a bad magician who had done that to her. And that all she had to do was find another magician to undo the spell. Mm -hmm. And so I told my father that, and of course he's a doctor, and she wouldn't believe that. But I think that's what happened, because they couldn't find anything, but she died. I was asked to teach the Peace Corps. You know what the Peace Corps is? Yeah? Peace Corps. Peace Corps, yeah, mm -hmm. du during the time of uh, one of the presidents, 1970, I think. The Peace Corps was the idea that we Americans have so much to give to the developing world, and so we would send young people <coughs> out to, the, to some village, and they, they teach them or help them agriculture, Western culture, whatever. And so the training was on this island. And so they asked me to be one of the trainers of the Peace Corps, young people. And so I told them <laughs> that if you get sick in the Peace Corps, in sick in a tropical country, Go to a local doctor because they know what diseases there are. But the Peace Corps has a law that they have to go to an American doctor. And American doctors don't know anything about tropical diseases and what to do about it. Mm -hmm. But I was fired for that. <laughs> Take it as a compliment. Yeah. But it's the reason why both Malaysia and Indonesia didn't have Peace Corps for a long time, because they're insulted. He said, our doctors are perfectly good. They're, they're trained like Western doctors, but they know the local situation. They know the local diseases. They know the parasites, you know. There's nobody in America who, who even thinks about parasites in, mm -hmm. in the body. But in, in the tropics, there are parasites. But Pisco wouldn't move. I was in Tonga, the kingdom of Tonga. And the Pisco came there and they, they said they wanted to set up. In certain village, they chosen the village, and they wanted a couple to come to, this, to live in this village on the other side of the island. And so he said they want you, the, the Peace Corps said, 
We want you to build a house just like the the piece, like the townhouse, but it has to have a kitchen and a bathroom in the house. And the town said, "Oh no, you can't do mean that." You know, in the tropics, we 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 never had a kitchen and a bathroom in the house. They were outside of the house. Okay. And all over the and all over the. Pacific, the islands, islanders all have the bathroom and the t kitchen outside of the house because the house is made out of, <coughs> out of palm leaves, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't convince the Peace Corps. And, Yeah, I, the idea of having a bathroom and the kitchen next to each other inside the house is appalling to a lot of people. On all the islands, you know, the smaller islands, the bathroom is the beach because twice a day the high tide comes and washes everything out to the ocean. Mm -hmm. It's a perfectly normal and perfectly good way to do, to live. <laughs> it's an interesting world, and we're busy destroying it. It's really hurting. We're busy recreating it. I think I think we we understood many understood the message. Mm. I mean, there are of course some others, you know. Who are interested? Yeah, I think more and more. I'm I'm so surprised, you know, that all of a sudden, after 20 years, that there are people coming to me and say and wanting to talk about this book. It's always sold, you know, like a thousand copies a year, but in the book trade, that's nothing. But all of a sudden, people coming from everywhere. I don't know. Which book did you read? I read only articles because I never heard about you, not before Clinton, Clinton uh, said or talked about you. Hmm. But I read this um, the original wisdom. You have like some some free articles, free mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. I read some of them. Well, that's the second edition. Yeah. No, it's not the second edition. Yeah, and I it's the same know. as the first book, but yeah. it's edited. But the first one is out of print, right? You don't have any. The first one is called What It Is To Be Human. Yes. Actually, it's called Hope Lies In Our Ability To Bring Back To Awareness What It Is To Be Human. And so hope is in small letters, and then what it is human is in big letters. Mm. Because I, I still believe that inside of us, we all believe, we all know what we used to be, you know, accepting what is, caring and sharing. It's still in us. 
biological, it's not in our brain. Yeah, that's why. And it's not in the DNA, it is biological. And I've, I've read now, I've, I hear, I'm listening to these audio books, and a lot of them talk about the brain. There's been a lot of research in the brain, and these four lobes are where they think we're thinking. I don't believe that. I think this is what makes us different from the apes. The apes have a forehead like that, mm -hmm. and we have added this part to the brain. Two parts, left and right. And they think that this, this, these are the place where our consciousness is. I think this is where we fantasize. It's not our consciousness, but it's our fantasy. Because we can imagine things that never were. We can invent machines. We can invent ideas. We can invent whole new ways of seeing reality. That comes from here. But it's hard to believe that one species of millions can destroy the ecology of a planet. So I think that makes me think that we can damage the planet and the planet can talk back to us, which it isn't doing now, climate change. But we cannot destroy the planet. And probably we will survive. You know, something from us will survive and evolve into another kind of human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe so too. Not all of us, but... Um. And I think the new human will, will be able to um, concentrate or to bring back to awareness what we used to know, which is like communicating mind to mind. I know that exists absolutely in, in my own heart. People don't believe that, but... I do. Yeah, I do. I talk, I used to talk to my dog. Or it absolutely, used to talk to yeah, me. absolutely. I mean, I've traveled everywhere and all over the world, except Africa. But and I've always been able to communicate with people, even if I didn't know the language and they didn't know mine. But it's absolutely true. <laughs> Thank you very much. I enjoyed that a lot. I hope you edit that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to publishing it. But, um, no, okay. Clinton asked me to record it. I think he's very curious about that. <laughs> I can, look, can I offer you some tea or coffee or something? I'm good. Cookies? I'm good. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you, Robert. Thank you. I'm honored.